0: Coming up on this week's show, we say goodbye to Internet Explorer.
1: A lost Sega game has been found.
2: And we chat text adventure history with Chris Ainsley.
1: This week's episode is brought to you by Beer52, the world's most popular craft beer discovery club.
0: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 238. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox and welcome to this week's show that Best bit of the week, I think, just before the weekend, when we get to geek out for an hour or so about our favourite topic, retro video games. And I don't know about you guys, this really is the highlight of the week for me doing this.
2: I haven't got really much to look forward
1: to at the
0: moment, so this is,
1: this is my week. <laughs> I love the enthusiasm from Ravi. Yeah, for, for me, uh, I absolutely love doing the show, absolutely love it. And you know what else I absolutely love doing, Dan? I absolutely do love doing our Patreon hangouts. Yes, it was oh, awesome. yeah. but this weekend... Yes, so I just wanted to get that out there because I know last time we kind of mentioned it like a few days before, and we only had a couple of people on there. So get on there. It's this. Is it this Sunday? This coming Sunday Sunday, Sunday. night. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I, I love the fact as well that when we're on there we're always kind of showing off things as well that we got I mean I was uh, showing off my Apple Newton last time I, I was just going to ask then have any you guys got anything new since the last Patreon hangout obviously Joe you've got um, something quite significant in your life that's come along yeah yeah
1: I've got a brand new SNES no I haven't actually I've got a brand new baby I've got a brand new little girl who uh, might come and hang out with us on the Patreon for a little bit while my wife gets some sleep but I also do have a few SNES games that I'll probably be cataloging which I, use, I usually do when we're on there and they always go on
2: really Really long, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. We always just, like, just keeps always, talking. What, so. what
1: always but, makes me laugh is Dan never eats his dinner before it. And then he'll be like, wait, yeah. it's like 11 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've got dinner yeah, I now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I should actually learn to have dinner before, shouldn't
0: I? I'll set the misses. I'll be done by about half nine. No, <laughs> it's in the fridge. Put it in the microwave. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, it's always such a good laugh as well. We look forward to these uh, coming up this weekend. If you're a patron, I'll post a link in our Patreon page. Uh, click the link. We'll be on Sunday evening from eight pm UK time. Now this week we're going to be talking uh, about probably the uh, the most traditional kind, of video game, going way back in the day. Talking about the purest kind video game entertainment text adventures i love a good text adventure
2: yeah i love a good text adventure and you know what i think it was a bit of a lost genre it it started off like really pioneering with mainframe computers and influenced a lot of people but i think text adventures they, they kind of went out of fashion for a while But recently we've seen a bit of a revival. I know we've been mentioning on this show quite a few new text adventures that have been coming out all boxed with like extra add-ons and manuals and stuff. Well, this week we're going to be talking about the history of text adventures and its revival with Chris Ainsley, who's created AdventureOn, which is basically a text adventure creation uh, utility, but it's available on the web and on your mobile phone as well.
0: Because text adventures, I mean, you're right, they did kind of go probably out of vogue in the mid 80s, I think, you know, when obviously computers became powerful enough to do graphics. I mean, I, I do remember an era when it was still text adventures, but there was also kind of graphics at the top half of the screen before, yeah. like, you know, the point and click. And, and then point and really click come. came
2: and kind of took over the whole adventure genre, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember playing games like, um, you know, Zork. I remember playing that, you know, the Infocom games and mm. uh, Granny's Garden on the BBC Micro that did have graphics. But, I mean, that was kind of a text adventure game that, you know, every kid used to play at school back then and still one of the most terrifying games ever. You know, we're talking about text adventures, though. I did remember something I'd forgotten until today. When I was a kid, my mum and I used to actually program video games in together from magazines. And I do remember that my auntie gave me... A collection of these old um programming mags called Input Magazine. And it was from like about 1982 to about 84. I got these in about maybe 89, 90. And I remember sitting with my mum and we programmed in a text adventure that span over, I think it was about 10 issues. It was absolutely massive. And then we got to the end of it and the thing didn't work. So even though we spent about like six <laughs> weeks typing the bloody thing in. But <laughs> I remember how, you know, because before the days of like interpreters. They were really complicated games to program because it was kind of like the, you know, the choose your own adventure books where you had to kind of take into account every eventual turn that the player would take and have all these different strands going on at once. And obviously, the player could turn in any direction, it could interact in many different ways with different characters. So, they're actually quite a complicated genre, I think. Text adventure,
2: yeah. And they've also got an element of something that we have missing from modern games, which is imagination. And yeah. I think, you know, when you're reading a book, you're painting a picture in your head kind of using your own imagination and it's exactly the same with text adventures and i think that's really been lost from gaming
0: I think it was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy there that kind of put me off text adventures. Because, as much as funny as that game was, I do remember it was you know hilariously unfair. It'd be like you know you get <laughs> you spend about an hour in the game, then you brush your teeth, and it'd be like, oh dear, the house has collapsed on your head. Unfortunately, you're dead. It'd like <laughs> random things like that could set things off. But you know they they are just a brilliant genre. And I know you've been playing like some modern AI adventure games.
2: Yeah, I've been looking at this uh, AI that's actually writing a text adventure game uh, called open AI, which is a uh, part of Elon Musk's kind of organization. And, my God, it's hilarious. Some of the results are really funny.
0: So more on text adventures on the way with our special guest this week, Chris Ainsley. And speaking of the news, let's get straight into it this week then, because we have, uh, it seems like we're talking about these every week at the moment, long lost games that have resurfaced again. But this one actually looks really special. We've got some footage of a cancelled Sega game that was set in the Sonic universe And it kind of dates from that era in the early to mid-90s, where it felt like we got a different platform game mascot coming along every couple of weeks. But this is a guy called Astropede, And it actually looks really good. Now, this is um, from a guy called Craig Stitt, who was actually an artist at Sega. And he was working on this game that they set in the Sonic 2 engine, by the looks of it. And he's kind of... An interesting-looking character, I think.
1: Yeah, for me, he actually looks like a boss from, like, the yeah. early Sonic games. He looks like somebody you'd have to jump on to kind of, like, make sure each bit of his body disappears. But what's really interesting is, from looking at the footage and stuff like that and reading about it, is they actually kind of, like, whipped it up quite quickly and they made it from a lot of the unused assets from Sonic 2 and some of the unused levels and stuff like that. But it's got a killer soundtrack, Uh, And it did look like a really kind of interesting concept because of rather than collecting rings, you collect parts of his body, which then make him bigger. But I'm not too sure of what, what the idea behind that was. Like if you got hit, you'd lose a piece of body or something. But it looks really interesting. And I'm like, I'm not too sure why it didn't come out because like you say, every other week, there was a new platformer, so maybe that was the reason they just said there was too many platformers, or you know something like that coming out. But I think it looks really interesting, and it you know had nice graphics set in the Sonic universe, so you couldn't have gone wrong.
2: It seems to be like a rolling demo that yeah. uh, footage has been released of. We might see a ROM of it one day. Who knows? But yeah. I, I'd say the physics look really good on it, like yeah, really yeah. tight as well. Mu- very much like a Sonic game, but more about balance and. Um, instead of just ramming and hitting stuff really fast.
1: (laughs) What I thought was quite interesting as well was when I first looked at it, it reminded me of Sonic Spinball. But according Mm. to this article, they actually then used some of the assets from this in Sonic Spinball. So they made Sonic 2, then started making this from Sonic 2's unused assets, but then used some of those assets into Sonic Spinball, if that makes sense.
2: (laughs) It's mad that we haven't heard of this before, because I thought, you know, Sonic fans are really, really into their stuff, you know, so they may have kind of researched it, but maybe this will get included in Sonic Mania, or who knows? Who
0: knows, yeah. yeah. I think it would be nice to see a little Easter egg of them, you know, in maybe a future Sonic game, because the difference, looking at this, I mean, some of the big differences from Sonic, like you said, he doesn't collect rings, he collects parts of his body. And I guess by the name, Astropede, he's meant to be like a, a centipede or a yeah. millipede or something like that. So he's actually, you look at the the character, he's very long. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like you said, there are these levels that are designed for Sonic, and his body kind of gets lost behind some of the scenery quite yeah, a lot of the time. Yeah, I
1: noticed that, yeah.
0: And it feels like, you know, it probably will be quite easy to, to get hit, you know, the longer your character is. And also he's got a gun as well, so he can kind of jump and shoot, which I guess kind of does give him a bit more protection over Sonic, for example.
1: Yeah, when I was watching the footage of it, I did think that kind of like, it made me like, go, oh, wait, what, what, Like kind of thing. Because you just, from the look of the game and the feel and the vibe of it and everything, you'd thought, oh yeah, he's just going to jump on this guy, he's just going to, and then... He whips his gun out and starts shooting them. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, okay, fair enough.
0: So there is a video, and it. it's about 12 minutes long, so there is quite a bit of the game that you can look at. Um, it's been posted by Sega Bits, But I think, yeah, like you guys, I think it would be amazing if one day, you know, this game does actually surface. And even if it's only a level or two, just getting, you know, to play it would be incredible, I think. Now let's talk about another story that's been all over this week, and there's something that, I've got to admit, did kind of make me smile a little bit, but... I'm a bit torn on this one because it was something that I was never a fan of. And I probably only used it maybe once every four or five years when I got a new computer, generally to download another web browser. But this is Internet Explorer has been laid to rest by Microsoft after 25
1: years. They're killing it off. I, uh, 20 years too late. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it knows it's, uh, you know, when they switch it off, whether it knows it's been switched off for a couple of weeks.
0: <laughs> oh, like, like it's gonna like it's gonna die slowly
1: yeah, it just doesn't know what's going on or anything like that you know what everybody takes the piss out of internet explorer i have to use yeah. it like every day for work like it's it's the browser on our laptops but, but there's like, nothing there's, i can do about it
2: there's a reason you have to use it and that was because microsoft were basically knobs yes. <laughs> what they did was they they basically went in there and packaged it with windows and yeah the problem with Internet Explorer was it never it never fully adhered to web standards, and yeah. it had its own standards. They were trying to basically dominate and say, if we get Internet Explorer at number one, then these weird standards are going to kind of become the biggest thing. But Out as the they did that, they destroyed Netscape. Right, And there was that great court case where Bill Gates is in the middle and they're doing a, a monopoly law case, and he's rocking up and down, and he's trying to kind of get his way out of it they actually won that he's
0: acting like a petulant child isn't he all the way yeah (laughs) and they
2: kind of won that case but then Netscape turned into Mozilla which then turned into Firefox and came around and kicked him in the ass but the main the main thing is I think that it, it sums up bad 90s practice to me and bad kind of monopoly and not really thinking about the users and the experience of the internet more thinking about kind of dominating with software like i used to love netscape i used to think it was one of the greatest browsers and it was a little bit out of date then it was about two years behind mosaic was about five years behind and i never really used mosaic but when internet explorer came yeah it, it did become the default but it really did hurt me <laughs> it was like <laughs> what are they doing and and it drove a lot of hate for microsoft
1: have they uh, given any sort of explanation to so why why they're doing this? Because uh, they've
2: got Edge now, oh, and Edge adheres to micros uh, to standards. And I okay. think they've the reason that they've got Edge is because they've tried to rebrand Internet Explorer so many times, but its reputation is just really yeah. bad still. And um, even though they've got Edge. Internet Explorer still has about the same percentage of uh, use as Edge does because a lot of companies still use it. So they have to keep that uh, Microsoft code in there so it's like backwards compatible. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot more secure, Edge, and uh, it's, it's a lot better browser. But it's still nothing compared to Chrome.
0: Well, I think, you know, you made a good point there, Ravi, that, you know, they never adhered to web standards, which is why a lot of companies had to use Internet Explorer, because the made applications only worked Yeah, with specific
2: IE. ones. Yeah, proprietary.
0: Yeah. So that was why, you know, a lot of companies were kind of locked into it. And, yeah, I mean, it is still going to be a mode in Microsoft Edge. You know, the IE code is still in there for legacy mode. But, I mean, there's that famous memo that you can look at online you know the internet tidal wave when bill gates finally got the internet and he realized actually this is going to be a thing in around 1994 it was i think 94 95 and you know netscape had a i think it was an 80 or 90 percent market share yeah in 1995 and then it was down to single digits by 1998 so internet explorer came along and just absolutely took over everything but ie was always a web browser that your mum used but also like
2: as a web designer as well for years i webkit when it came out was a blessing because i'd ha- i'd have to write code and then you'd have to write specific rules for ie yeah so you'd do all your code and then you'd be like right now let's do the internet explorer stuff and it was really frustrating there was no other browser that you had to do specific rules for
0: but i will say one thing in internet explorer's defense i mean i mentioned before the fact that you know to a lot of people having that included with windows actually opened the door to the web, you know, that probably wouldn't have got on the web for a couple of years if it wasn't in there in Windows 95 and Windows 98. Yeah, but also yeah. th- the fact that before that, web browsers were a paid for product. Netscape cost $49.
2: Yeah, I think I think maybe if they'd had, if they'd, well, you can argue that it was included in the price of Windows, but yeah. if, if they'd not had IE on there, people would have just gone down and downloaded Netscape or they would have, gone to Mosaic as well, uh, there probably would have been new versions of, of the other operating systems, and we'd probably still have, like, Mosaic today or something.
0: Well, the original Internet Explorer was based on Mosaic, I think, because so they kind of cobbled it together really quickly, you know, to kind of be a Netscape competitor. I.e., I mean, over the years, it did kind of get a bit better, but it was still... Yeah, I mean, a like stuff before. like
2: Silverlight. Do you remember yeah. Silverlight and all those external plugins that you had to have? And then when it started to get extensions...
0: And they were all really,
2: really unsecure.
0: <laughs> you know, if I open the start menu and I kind of spot the little, uh, the little E with the swoosh around it, I do get a bit nostalgic. Like, oh, look at that. That's quaint. Yeah, you see, <laughs> we were we, we tw- were in <laughs> different camps, though.
2: Dan, you were you were with the Windows ninety
0: five t shirts and uh, friends, and I was in the Amiga camp, going those buggers. <laughs> oh no, don't don't get me wrong. I, I still use Netscape even on Windows. I've never used IE. Always. Yeah, I've it, even got a Netscape <laughs>
2: theme on my um, Firefox at the moment. I'm that sad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can actually use there's a web browser today called SeaMonkey, isn't there, that actually looks like the old Netscape navigator, but it's Yeah, I on, think they got up to like
2: the final kind of versions.
0: I think it's like Netscape seven or something yeah,
2: crazy like
0: that. Yeah, I was yeah. using that a while ago, and it's got like yeah, Usenet reader and all that built into it. Still, that was you know t- took me back a bit. But I remember even composing websites with like Netscape Composer and stuff like that back in the day. It was well. Also, then time. you
2: had um, FrontPage as well by Microsoft, yeah. which was their editing program that no one used. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was loads. But Netscape ended up ended up changing, and they kind of took their code into the Mozilla Foundation, and yeah. that's basically saved it.
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, it's obviously been a very interesting 25 years and uh, it does give me a bit of satisfaction to kind of see a bit of comeuppance. I imagine uh, Mark Andreessen, you know, the founder of Netscape, probably had a bit of a party at the weekend. When uh, I can imagine web
2: designers around the world are going, (laughs)
0: yeah, (laughs) he's gone. So rest in peace, Internet Explorer. You will not be missed by many. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's a story that made Joe smile this week. One of your favourite games of all time, Zombies Ate My Neighbours. That's kind of getting a sequel now, then.
1: Yeah, so I anything to do with Zombies Ate My Neighbours or Zombies, as we know it in the UK, um, I just get so excited for. It's one of my favourite games of all time. Um Whenever we talk about anything to do with it on the show, I always get really hyped about it. Um, So it already did actually have a sequel, funny enough, uh, which nobody seems to know about on the SNES called Ghoul Patrol, which was pants. But there's a new kind of pseudo sequel, spiritual successor coming out, which is called Demons Ate My Neighbours, which is expected to come out at the end of 2021. So we've got a while to wait for it. And so far, it's been confirmed it's coming out on Steam and it is coming out on Switch. But uh, essentially what this is, is there is a trailer for it, which I'm sure Dan will stick in the uh, show notes. And it plays and looks just like Zombies Ain't My Neighbours, uh, you know, with that kind of like hand-drawn, nice, smooth graphics. But you're not fighting zombies, you're fighting demons, kind of like in that kind of evil dead kind of vein. But what's really cool about it is it's by the developers Turned Out Games, uh, who recently did the Toe Gem and Earl back in the groove. And it's set in 1991, so it looks very kind of like tubular you know, of that kind of error, um, And it's all the kind of sane weapons and stuff as Zombies ate My Neighbours. So, you know, like water guns and uh, throwing fruit and apples and stuff like that. And the idea behind the game is it's a cursed videotape um, and demons are coming out of the people's TV sets. And it's up to you. You look like some sort of plumber to kind of like a TV repair guy <laughs> <laughs> to kind of stop it. Um, but what's really cool is on the 1st of September, they are launching a Kickstarter for it. So it is definitely already coming out on Switch and Steam, but they're doing a Kickstarter um, to get it to come out on Xbox Series X and PS5, um, which I'd be really excited about because of I would like to kind of get a physical copy for it for whichever console I get. But the goal is one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. But they have said if they hit that, they're going to improve the game as it is coming out anyway. They're going to put more enemies in it, more levels you know, and just kind of like touch up the graphics and stuff like that.
0: And it's got good credentials behind this as well. I mean, you said, you know, turned out games. Human Nature Studios are involved yeah. as well. It did um, Tojo and O'Neill Back in the Groove. Obviously, we did an episode with those guys. But also looking at the the people who've worked on the game, you've got T. Lopes on there, who was on, uh, he worked on Sonic Mania. Yeah. And Wonder Boy as well, you know, the, the new version of Wonder Boy. So you've actually got some people with great credentials in making successful retro-style games involved in this as well i love the fact that it's going to have a local co-op mode too it's not just all online play
1: yeah no it's definitely something i'm excited about because it's something you know i can sit down and play with my friends or sit down and play with my wife and you know shout at her when she uses all our lives with the five levels um (laughs) and it's just something i miss you just don't get that with modern games um, so, I, like I say, I'm I'm always super excited for anything to do with zombies. Ain't my neighbors.
2: It's got that kind of Hawaii shakedown, modern, yeah. modern retro kind of look as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And I love that modern retro look. Like, and you know, a lot of games are doing it recently. Uh, but I think a lot of games are nailing it as well recently. Like, it doesn't look pants. It looks
0: yeah. very green.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of. uh, (laughs) It it does look quite green. There's a lot of like slime and stuff like that, but there's a lot of like outdoor levels and stuff. But, you know, I hope. I mean, the graphics, I don't want to, because I'm always excited about these things, they don't look amazing at the moment, but I'm sure that's not the final product.
0: Well, it's kind of got that kind of, the B-movie kind of style as well that Zombies, like my neighbours had. You know, that the kind of intro text and all that looks like it could be like a, a 50s B-movie and stuff. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, always getting like, a, you know, something new that kind of follows on from... Classic games like that is an exciting thing, I think. So um, maybe we can do an episode with those guys in the future. on. I was actually thinking about. that
1: as we were talking about it. <laughs> as I was rambling on there, I was like, oh we could get them on. <laughs> get on it, Joe. I'll, it. I'll get <laughs> so, on it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, obviously, we're going to be talking about text adventure games in a moment. Some of you have been playing this week, then. This is an open AI-based text adventure game that essentially learns as you play.
2: Yeah, well, I haven't actually been able to play it because I haven't been able to get into it yet, but this is really interesting. What it is is we've been looking at artificial intelligence playing old school games. So Google DeepMind was a great example of that. And uh, there's a few of these kind of huge artificial intelligence machines out there, and OpenAI is one, which is uh, funded by Mr. Elon Musk as well. And they have a thing called generative pre-trained Transformer free, which is an autoregressive language model, but it basically uses deep learning to produce human-style text. So um, there's a program called AI Dungeon, which is a free adventure game, text adventure game. And what they've done is they've managed to implement this kind of AI into that adventure game to create stories and there's an article on Gizmondo at the moment about how weird these stories are (laughs) you know when you've got AI writing something it's it's not being able to do it like a human and kind of get the ideas of surroundings or expression in there like if you've ever read uh, erotica written by AI it's one of the funniest things you've ever (laughs) heard in history because it actually makes no sense there's loads of Like AI poetry out there as well, but um,
0: you know, I I haven't read AI erotica, but I will be later. (laughs) Now that you've said that, I really want to see that. Me and Dan are going to read it together. (laughs) That's not going to get us talked about, (laughs) Joe. And. uh, The- well, you, know, you know, in this story here on Gizmondo, there is actually a little excerpt from the auto-generated text and stuff. It's like, a a woman found a human skull in her garbage can. Upon arriving, you notice the damp dirt clings to the skull, making it seem as if someone dug it up recently. The lower jaw is missing, and only two teeth remain. There's a hole about the size of a quarter in the middle of the forehead. So actually, it is coming up with, like, stories. Yeah, it's, it's, stories. it's
2: coming up with stories, but then, like, the, the, the linking and, like, the district, descriptive stuff will go a bit weird and then you'll be like what and it will start to feel a bit surreal or like it's been written by a kid
1: that felt quite <laughs> surreal then just like it'd be an ex- <laughs> it's just that little excerpt then I was like oh like thinking about it
2: <laughs> what happens
1: yeah, like, <laughs> next oh my
0: god
2: <laughs> the stories are unlimited as well because yeah, it's yeah. So- auto-generated so literally every time you're going to use it it's going to be a a new completely random story of something that you can't think of at all that uh, this ai
0: is going to produce it's crazy so did these games have endings then or is it kind of like the story will just go on forever
2: i don't know yeah maybe it will have it might like set goals that you have to achieve but you might not know what the goals are or they might be abstract who knows (laughs) i need to get on it but at the moment you can't You can't get on it. You need to uh, register and then kind of pay for subscription on this AI dungeon. But um, I'm going to get part of it and have a go. You know, it looks really good fun. I was playing an AI dungeon version of uh, the Tiger King earlier, which was quite funny talking about um, you know that tv show on Netflix. yeah, yeah and it was like you've got to cut costs get rid of all your staff and it was like hire local teenagers
0: shoot, shoot some tigers
1: hire
0: yeah. <laughs> <Buy> some crackheads <laughs> well the, so i mean a lot, a lot of these are like web-based and that one you were playing is yeah is yeah web-based. that's web-based you could yeah. get
2: it for android as well
0: i've always found ai Procedural games, interesting. I remember, you know, a really basic example of that. Did did you ever use a program called Eliza? No. This was, um, was, I think it was on the Commodore 64 and other platforms like that. I had a version on the Amiga as well. And I think it came on a cover disc. So essentially what this was, was an artificial intelligence counsellor. So it would ask you, like, you know, how are you feeling today? And you'd be like, oh, you know, oh, a bit down in the dumps, had a stressful day. And it it would look at, like, keywords in there. What was stressful about your day? And it would, you know, it would kind of go through and kind of counsel you based on these, you know, responses that you've given to it. Obviously, it was very basic, being that this was, I think it was actually made in the 70s originally. But... Even the foundations of it back then, I found that, you know, the machine's kind of learning from what you were telling it. And obviously, its vocabulary would build up the more words you gave it. I always found that really interesting. But the it, things did, did it did
2: reassure did... you in the end?
0: Change your mood? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, come out, all jolly afterwards. Oh, thanks, Eliza. What a great <laughs> day I'm going to have now. <laughs> yeah, if you're ever feeling down, pop that disc in. It'll put you in the best mood. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this kind of stuff, using AI for just kind of these unlimited... Stories, you know, that could just go on forever. I think it's a really good use of it. So, um, I'm, I'm sure Ravi can find a few examples we can put in the show notes if you want to try out some uh some web based AI games. Now, before we chat all about text adventures with our special guest this week, Chris Ainsley, this looked quite cool. This is a thing called the App Boy. Essentially, you can build your own tiny retro gaming console.
2: Yeah, this is awesome. It's like a little PCB basically, and it's got all the sections for the components. You can put them in, solder it yourself. You've got an OLED screen, but also you can use an Arduino to kind of program it. And I, I saw that they were playing asteroids
0: on it and uh, quite a few nice little items. Yeah, I see Space Invaders running on it here as well. I've got to admit, this does look very, uh, <laughs> very straight you know if you want to look hardcore with this you're essentially holding a pcb with a couple of switches on it and the the chips are all exposed and everything and it's not in a case or anything i was
1: just thinking i'd cut my fingers up on this (laughs) trying to play it or you put it in your pocket and you go to pull it out and it's just like caught on all the threads or something from your jeans yeah you snag some solder (laughs) on the bottom of the usb port (laughs) yeah i think
2: it's i think it's like fully homemade kind of board and uh you can basically print them yourself uh, the pcbs and then get the parts list and kind of build it but maybe people will make cases in the future you know it's got cool stuff like a micro usb port as well it's got little leds on there so it might be customizable you know you could add some fat speakers on there <laughs> <A> big sub <laughs> Who knows?
0: <laughs> and if it's arduino based i guess you can run like emulation platforms and stuff on it yeah yeah probably.
2: you can program on it like it'd be good to get pico 8 or something on there wouldn't it
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I remember being at school and like building little radios and, you know, Morse code transmitters and stuff like that. Yeah, little kits, you know. I'd love to have built this at school. This looks awesome. Kind of making your own Game Boy. Never thought I'd see the day when you can do that. looks really good. So if you want to check that out, I mean, that would be a good little uh, hobby project to do on the weekend. It doesn't look that complicated either, actually, which I think is quite good.
2: Yeah, it's all laid out really simply. There's like, you can't actually see the traces really on on the front one. You know, you can follow them, but they've all been painted over and it's by a guy called Arnov Sharma.
0: Yes, I'd get one of these and just wouldn't show anyone my soldering on the back. Yeah, just don't turn it red. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to find out how to get one of those, we'll put that and everything else we talked about this week in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we'll do our Hall of Fame in just a minute. Remind you how you can get involved in our Patrons Hangout that's coming up this weekend too. Before we do that, let's give a huge thank you to one of our favourite companies in the world who have supported this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast and actually supported this show for a couple of years now. Really good friends of ours. Our good mates at Beer 52. Now... We all go warm and cosy when we hear the words free beer. And of course, with it being this time of year now, coming towards the end of summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, not many days left to go out in the garden and soak up the sunshine, but we want to get you involved in this right now. Get your own case of Beer 52, eight craft beers, sourced and curated from the best breweries on the planet for free. Now, all you've got to do is head to this website right now, tap this in your phone, beer52.com, forward slash retro all you have to do is cover five pounds 95 for the postage and they will send you eight free craft beers in the post on us and of course for doing that you'll be helping out the podcast as well and us three guys i mean you know we all like a drink now and then and we're all big fans of beer 52 as well it's pretty much a case of beer you know i was surprised about how long it lasted
2: (laughs) 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 you know uh, it's a really good deal though and you can get like dark or light beers as well when it comes with a magazine and a snack
0: and every month you get it as well. There's like something different to surprise you in there as well because they often do different themes. Like they've, um, I got one that was like beer from New Zealand. There's like a South African case that they sent. It's stuff that you know you normally wouldn't think of trying, but actually it opens your mind to a lot of new stuff. Um, and obviously they do European beer. They're really passionate about the UK craft beer scene as well. And they're actually the world's most popular craft beer discovery club with over 150,000 members and growing. And they will send you a brand new case every month. And that Ravi said, then you know if dark beer is not thing, choose a light option, and you also get their award-winning beer magazine, Ferment, and a tasty snack included as well. So if you change your mind or you want to pause or cancel, you can do that anytime, no obligation. But if you'd like to get your free case right now, you can claim it by going to beer52.com forward slash retro. Get your first case of eight beers for just £5.95 postage, beer52.com forward slash retro. Thanks to our very good friends at Beer52. So, patrons hangout out coming up this weekend. And, of course, if you want to support this podcast, a really good way to do that is by nipping onto our website, com, and clicking on that little supporters tab. And we have lots of different tiers on our patron. I mean, essentially, you can help out this show and make sure it keeps going into the future for, I think our lowest tier is $4 a month. That is like, you know, a Starbucks coffee or something, isn't it? You know, in many parts of the world. So for just a dollar a month, you could help out this show and keep it going. And of course, you will get a mention in a future episode on the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you so much to Alexandra Fillion. Oscar Jacobson. Chris Hall, Patrick Bregger. And Leo Sumo who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to help us out, of course, at the moment, we're uh, getting our home studios kitted out as well. I've made a, a little shopping list that is really going to help out with this show. It will mean that Joe doesn't have to lie on the floor in this gaming room <laughs> with a 13-year-old laptop and a USB microphone to do this show. You, sounded like,
1: you sound like I live in like, a cave and like um, I'm squatting. <laughs> Expect an
2: improvement in sound quality in the next couple of weeks, I'd say. <laughs>
0: You, you'll be able to hear the uh, the water dripping off the walls in Joe's dark dungeon that he has to be in the Thank moment. you. very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your help, guys, so far. And if you'd like to join us on Sunday night, of course, the link will be in our Patreon at theretrohour.com. Right, then, let's talk about text adventure games with this week's special guest, Chris Ainsley, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to The Retro Hour Podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we're going to be talking about a topic that I think is, you know, really going back to roots of video games and games that really use your imagination and a genre that was kind of forgotten for a few years but has actually had a bit of a resurgence recently. We're going to be talking about the text adventure with the creator of Adventure On, Chris Ainsley. Welcome to The Retro Hour Podcast. Hello. Great to have you on, Chris. Now, uh, before we get into the... You know, kind of the history of text adventure games and the projects that you are working on these days. I mean, where did it kind of all begin for you? Then, do you remember your earliest text adventure experience? It's
3: a little bit hazy. It was either The Hobbit, which uh, I remember the family went on a shopping trip down to the local Comet, and we got this really expensive game for the Spectrum, which was uh, which had a book inside. So that The Hobbit was a very early experience, but it could have been Smuggler's Cove as well, which was a a, a game with a much smaller cassette. Uh, by Quicksilver. So it was either one of those two.
0: What memories do you have of those then?
3: Well, The Hobbit was a really kind of family communal experience. So the family would play it together. And I remember us all getting stuck, uh, trying to uh, climb into the barrel in The Hobbit. And uh, my mother just brings up The Hobbit all the time because she absolutely loved that adventure.
2: Well, we've heard like from a lot of our guests at the roots of text adventures and video games were based on colossal caves adventure and that was on the pdp 10 mainframe so how important was that title
3: well i think it was extremely important because it was really the first adventure game so it established the rules of the genre how to navigate uh, how to pick up objects how to solve puzzles it was a verb noun style adventure game and pretty much everything that followed on followed on from the colossal cave adventure
2: And that was by uh, Will Crawford, wasn't it? And uh, ended up getting ported to many other mainframe systems. Yes, yeah.
3: It was a revelation on campus. Um, I understand I I was a bit too young to go through that myself, but it was really kind of a rite of passage to part adventure.
2: It's it's really weird to think that that game came out of a kind of caving enthusiast (laughs) 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 making a, a game about exploring caves and then that kind
0: of
3: Birth, yeah, it, it was based on a real cave uh, cluster. I understand, and um, it was mapped before it was coded.
0: You know, it's interesting to think how much money these like early text adventure games universities were spending. Because obviously, those mainframes weren't cheap to run. Yeah, they must have cost millions actually for people to play these games back then. I guess.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody was playing playing these games in their own home. They would have to go to university, and they would have to go to the the science lab to play these games. So uh, a lot of people were kind of sneaking into the into the campuses at night to play these games.
0: Well, you know, if we're talking about text adventures, we, we were mentioning before in the start of the show that really, I mean, text adventures, like I said before, it's a pure kind of gaming. We kind of equate it to, you know, reading a book as opposed to watching a movie because it really uses your imagination. And what kind of skills did... Text adventure fans developed back then. It, obviously, I mean, I imagine hand-drawing maps was probably a thing.
3: Yeah, I, I think in the early days, because there was no graphical representation of, of maps. It was part of the fun to explore the world, to draw the maps. And the game makers really experimented with navigation. So they, they often had crazy ways of navigating between locations. So you go east to a location, and then to get back to the same location, you might need to go uh, southwest. So there were some really crazy maps that came, came out with that, but that was part of the fun in that era.
0: Well, Scott Adams' Adventure was the first text adventure game for micros. How many standards did that game set?
3: Um, I think it was probably the most important game. Um, after, after Adventure, it really just set the standard because uh, Scott Adams was trying to fit this this huge mainframe game into 16 kilobytes of memory. So essentially he had to reduced the game down to to the most minimal components locations objects uh puzzles and just boiled it down to like where am i what am i carrying what's here and uh what can i do to transform the environment so he really invented the, the modern text adventure game at least until infocom came along a little
2: bit later and he he created the parser right so what what is a parser
3: uh, a parser is something that takes text that you enter into a computer and turns it into some internal representation. In in the early days, um, Scott Adams' parser was was really just looking at either one word or two two words. So you could have you could navigate using north and south. That would be one word, or, or two words like a verb and a noun. So get apple, throw coin, uh, words like that. So so a parser would just turn
2: text into a verb and a noun essentially. And that would help it kind of fit on this really small size
3: yeah because then then you could essentially tokenize you could just turn these words into numbers then you could have a little statement in there saying if it's if it's this number in this scenario then do this and it helped to shrink down the code
0: so I was talking before on the show um, about, you know, an adventure game that my mum and I tried to program when, we were, when I was a kid. And it was, uh, you know, we, li- we literally put like every different variant of what the player could do into the, into the basic code and it ended up being massive and then it didn't work at the end. But I imagine, you know, when parsers came along, having that really made sense because I always wondered, like, how, how did it kind of take into account all the different options that a player might go for and how did they have all these different variables in there?
3: Well, I mean, there are some tricks. The first is that if you limit your nouns, then the player is not going to try something on, on something that doesn't exist in the scene. So if you don't list a giraffe in the scene, then the, the game doesn't have to respond to anything with a giraffe in. So you limit your nouns to just things that you want the player to do. And that actually helps the player because it gives them a the scope of the game. And um, yeah, you also have catch-all statements. So if you examine something that isn't there, you see, you see nothing special. So whether something is there or whether something isn't there, it'll say you see nothing special. Um, and that's a great way of saving memory because it's just a catch-all statement in case it's something you didn't code.
2: And outside of the kind of pioneers and elite coders and guys using the university mainframe, I guess uh, this was the first exposure Adventureland, Ventureland uh, for many people being on like the TRS-80 and the Spectrum and all these different machines.
3: Yeah, I, I imagine so. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit too young to have gone through that myself but it must have been a revelation to get that it in your home environment to have it on your own television screen or have it have it on your own monitor and it was ported to pretty much every platform and there's a version for the spectrum a commodore 64 apple II. um yeah it was it was a really seminal uh, text adventure game
0: well, I, you know, when I was a kid, I used to read these um, choose-your-own-adventure books where you'd get to the end of a chapter and it'd be like, you know, you can pick your options and if you do this, go to page 100, if you do this, go to page 150. I and then, mean, is it kind of a connection with text adventures and physical game books?
3: I think, I think there is, um, in that it's certain types of text adventures and narrative experiences and, of course, uh, game books are the same kind of narrative experience, but it's very limited because... You have a prescribed set of things that you can do. You have prescribed interactivity. Whereas you have this kind of blue sky approach in parser-based games. You can try anything. Um, you can really be creative with your verb and your noun. And I know it doesn't seem like that, but it, it just seems more freeing. Like the world is, you can you can try anything. Whereas in the games with fixed options, such as uh, game books, you, you, can't really, you can't really do that. It's, it's very enjoyable, but it's
2: not quite as flexible and it it seems like a bit of a kind of experience you know I used to play text adventures with my friends sitting next to me and a game book I'd probably do solo or or, or sit on my own so there's variables kind of you know it's always good to have a different set of eyes on there and uh, yeah I could imagine it being really kind of limited with just the physical game book
3: well, the, the physical game books often had other mechanics in there as well, like roll a dice and have a battle. And uh, if you win the battle, turn to this page. If you lost the battle, turn to this page. And, uh, you know, when I used to play those games, I used to cheat. It's like, I always win the battle. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know I read if it backwards. Played. Yeah, or, you know, stick your thumb in the page. And um, those types of games... Um, they're very fun and it's really just about learning where the where the dead ends are you can read it as a story and i think that maybe other people do read those things as a story but i was just trying to game the system right i just want to be successful i just want to make my way through the book so maybe i wasn't the best player but i, I really enjoyed those those uh books
0: well obviously zork was a game changer and uh, generally regarded as the first interactive fiction game what's the difference between an interactive fiction and a plain adventure game then
3: oh well i'm i'm pretty um opinionated about this um interactive fiction is really a story that you're a part of. So you can read it as um, essentially there is a narrative and you're in a world and you describe the actions and then the game actually reads back the response to your actions. And later uh, Infocom Games really, really uh, bought into that concept of this is an interactive book, an interactive story. It was way more interactive than earlier text adventures with more limitations. But um, Zork wasn't quite like that. It was more anachronistic it was it was more similar to uh colossal cave that came before it but infocom was really into this branding of interactive stories and that their parser was ahead of everybody at the time and i think it's you know even into the 90s it was still ahead of everybody else they were they were 10 years ahead of the curve
2: and, and that really you're right it does root back to colossal caves as well doesn't it and the old fortran days and PDP uh, yeah. 10 yeah it's um I mean, their technology was so far ahead of um,
3: everybody else's. They had a full uh, portable virtual machine that they were running. And uh, the problem with the Infocom approach is that it required more expensive machines. So uh, if you had a Spectrum, you didn't see Infocom games on the Spectrum because Spectrum games, at least until Plus 3 came along, they loaded from tape. So you needed you needed one of those posh machines to play Infocom games, and I kind of missed out.
0: Well, if we're talking about, you know, those kind of early days of text adventures on micros, I mean, like I said, Infocom, massive company. Obviously, Sierra were the other big name in adventure games as well. I mean, how important were these companies to text adventure development then, back then?
3: Very important. I'd say Sierra, um, Scott Adams, Sierra, and Infocom were were the granddaddies of the industry, because Sierra, they really introduced the concept of text adventures plus graphics, and they weren't really graph uh, graphic adventures in those days because they were graphical text adventures you, you went into a location and you see the you see the location in primitive vector graphics but at least you could see it and you could interact with it and you could do things like that and sierra were really the first company to play around with with those ideas and then of course sierra went on to hybrid parser type games uh, the early police quests were you could move character around the screen uh, but you would have to type commands. And that that gave you, I think, the best of both worlds. There are new games coming along that have this hybrid approach. There's a game called uh, The Crimson Diamond uh, by Julia Minamata, I think. I hope I get the name name right. But that's a game that's coming along, I think, next year. And that's adopting the same kind of Sierra uh, approach of hybrid parser games. Infocom, of course, I mean, they made text adventures commercially viable and uh, you can't really underestimate their, their impact on the industry.
2: Do you think there's like a defining point where they went to those kind of hybrid games and there's still some text adventure purists that are like, we kind of lost something when we got the visuals?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the games of that era were very, very primitive. So the graphics were probably not as good as many people's imaginations and they think we don't need this why do we need this um for other people they just think oh my god i can see i can see the world now i can see it and i, lo- I love it because it's bright and vibrant and happy um, so y- you gain something and you lose something i think
0: A game that you know when i was a kid that was a massive impact on me was granny's garden on the bbc micro which yeah. it was an educational <laughs> game but again it was an adventure game and when that you know that graphic at the end popped up when the witch got you. It was like, still oh, yeah. to this day, I have nightmares about that. <laughs> yeah, me too. That me too. End up screaming. Yeah, and the kind, of,
3: kind of jagged, the jagged teeth, and uh, just the idea that there's a, there's a witch uh, that, that is somehow stalking you in this world. It just terrified terrified me as a child but it was it was exciting
0: and all she did is send you home when she caught you she didn't even burn you or anything off <laughs> no. the cauldron.
3: i mean a, a, a granny's garden is not not really a text adventure but it is kind of an interactive uh, it is kind of an interactive fiction style game i would say
0: so another game that i remember playing loads as a kid and it was hideously unfair was hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and obviously that was a really famous franchise you know the douglas adams story coming into a text adventure game and i mean was there many cases of that you know kind of established franchises, then realising that actually there's a genre here that is quite popular now and we could actually put our stories out as text adventures?
3: Um, Yeah, I I think there was an era where that was happening. There were stories like Hitchhikers, but there were other games like um, uh, Robin of Sherwood, which was based on the TV show. And then one of my favourite games is The Famous Five, which was based on the first book in the Famous Five series. So there were certainly kind of um, tie-ins that were happening um, in the mid to late 80s. Um, but they kind of died out with the commercial viability of of text adventure games, unfortunately, because it'd be great. I mean, I, I would absolutely love it if when a movie came out, there was a, you know, a text adventure version of that movie, but it doesn't tend to happen these days.
0: Yeah, and it got to, got to the stage where, you know, a lot of movies and TV shows ended up becoming like platform games in the late 80s and early 90s. And you thought that would have made a great adventure game instead.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's there are a lot of movies that are, about, um, that are about story, and you can't really accurately portray that with a 16-bit platformer. But unfortunately, that, there just wasn't a financial viability to turn those games into text adventures. And uh, these days, it would be great if, um, if certain rights holders would turn a blind eye or they would say, oh, you know, it's okay for fan text adventure games to be made of these, providing they don't pay a fee. But unfortunately, that just doesn't happen. I mean, I've, I've actually tried myself to get the rights to certain IPs just to do a free adventure, but no.
0: Can you imagine like a Doctor Who or like even a, a Red Dwarf text adventure? Oh, it would be absolutely Ready brilliant. Player one.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be absolutely brilliant. I mean, the uh, Star Wars text adventure game, but the rights are not available, unfortunately.
2: Well, I remember a piece of software uh, called The Quill and you you worked with Tim Gilbert at one point. Um, that was a text adventure creation tool. How much influence did that have on you?
3: Well, I think it had a significant uh, influence on me and pretty much anybody else that played text adventure games on the Spectrum in the 80s. Um, there was this whole kind of homebrew text adventure creation scene uh, in the 80s, and that was really centered around this this tool, the Quill, that was actually made by um, Graham Yandel, but Tim Gilberts published it and ran with it, and uh, he produced all the subsequent versions of that that software. So Tim is really the granddaddy. He's the person who saw that uh, self publishing was the future. Long before, long before other people were were tinkering with the same idea. So you had thousands of adventures that that really can be attributed to Tim publishing the Quill, and uh, it just made text adventures very easy for for non programmers to write.
2: I, I I remember doing one myself, which was uh, based in the Houses of Parliament, and you were running around there. It, it, we'd be able to do really rude ones as well. <laughs> we'd always be right. Trust if, you. Really rude text
0: adventures <laughs> for ourselves. Did you ever write a text adventure as a kid then, Chris? Was it, when, when did you try writing your own?
3: Um, actually, the first time I wrote a text adventure was with Adventuron. Um I had the quill uh, when I was younger, but I just wasn't that creative, unfortunately. I just ended up making making a game of my house, which I think a lot of people ended up doing in, in those days. So really, the first time that I've written a text adventure was about two years ago.
2: And I, I think I've got a lot better since I was a child, but Yeah. <laughs> Well, what are the more unusual text adventure games that you've found? And are there any really weird titles?
3: Yeah, there are, there are quite a few. <laughs> there's uh there's a game called Trolley Mania by uh, Gareth uh, Pitchford and you basically have to collect trolleys uh, for a supermarket. <laughs> it's so it's so mundane, it's brilliant. And uh, there's a game called Untitled uh, Bowerbird Game, and this is by uh, Benjamin and Ellen Rageb. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. And that's about collecting shiny items to attract a mate. Um, so that, that's pretty fun. <laughs> uh, but the one that kind of sticks in my mind and a lot of people's mind is Jaws the text adventure game, which is that you're, you're the shark and you have to kind of swim around the beaches and uh, eat the various tourists in the sea. So that's kind of silly. Um, sounds wicked from the shark's
0: perspective. <laughs> from the shark's
3: perspective, yeah.
0: Well, that Adventure Games obviously morphed into point-and-click games when, you know, the late 80s and the 16-bit machines kind of came around. Actually, you know, a bit before that were like Zap McCracken and games like that. But why do you think the text adventure declined then? Do you think it was just due to the more graphical prowess of those machines?
3: I think it was that the... The market stayed stagnant stagnant for non-textual, sorry, for textual games, but it, it was growing for everything else. So technology was moving forward and everybody was into graphics. That just seemed to be the next, the the logical progression. Uh, text-only adventures stayed around, but I don't think the mass market followed, followed text-only adventures. After Inco- Infocom stopped publishing, then um, I think there wasn't much commercial viability left.
0: What about your personal history? Did you kind of stick with text adventures and kind of keep playing ones you could find? Or? Yeah, I did. I mean, I had my
3: Spectrum until the early 90s, um, and then I had a Sam Coupe after that. So I I really had these kind of lower spec machines. So I was buying homebrew uh, software from Zenobi. So Zenobi was still, I think it was the last publisher that was publishing for the Spectrum commercially. So they was publishing up to about 96 or 97
2: um and so i was i was buying text adventures from zenobi it was interesting because think we were talking about that time period recently and it was a bit of a resurgence after when mobile phones came in with the smaller screens and stuff like the nokias like uh, they had it was just text and uh, there was games like on wap and stuff like that it would have been fantastic if there was a kind of text adventure revival then
3: yeah, it would have been, but I think the screens were still a little bit too small. You could have probably done a Scott Adams-style adventure game um, using those screens, and probably some people did miss a trick by, by not doing that. But I think even in those days, it was pretty difficult to type, type in the, uh, the text to a sufficient degree that it would be an enjoyable
2: experience. Yeah, it would have been a predictive text actually. Yeah. Would have got mad.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: But I mean I think it I think it would have worked but you would have had to you couldn't just dump Colossal Cave Adventure on there you would have had to adapt it to the screen.
0: And I could do pretty quick sentences with that it was a T9 keyboard wasn't it. I, I got I was a wizard on my Nokia 3310 I must admit. <laughs> yeah, well
3: 3310 was a brilliant phone. <laughs>
0: Even like you know in the 90s I remember like the public domain scene kinda kept text adventure games alive somewhat didn't it
3: yeah that, that's right um, Graeme Nelson uh, created a tool called uh, inform and that was created in the early 90s and he Graham just keeps going um, he's he's produced uh, inform one to seven I think seven was released in 2006 and it's it's brilliant from a technical perspective absolutely brilliant and uh, I, I think that really helped the community survive and there are yearly competitions um, that that mostly revolve around uh, Inform and some of these other non parser based uh, interactive fiction systems.
0: So today, text adventures have kind of seen a bit of a comeback, and obviously we're going to get into Adventure on in just a moment. Why do you think that now seems to be the time when people are kind of rediscovering this genre?
3: Um, It's probably just what is old is new again. Uh, Everybody's forgotten about text adventure games. So if something's so old that you don't know it then when you discover it again it's it's brand new so I, I think it's just one of these things that if you if you really want to get into uh making a game why not make the simplest kind of game that that you can conceive of and the text adventure game is pretty easy to write it's not easy to write a good one but it is easy to write one so i think that's part of the reason um the other the other part is that the tools are just getting better so you well adventure one is one tool but there are many other tools that are that are improving at the moment and there are more options than ever i would say
2: are these um game jams or gaming competitions helping like just get loads of titles out really quickly
3: i i think so i mean there's there's been an annual competition if comp that occurs every year and this generally is based around uh, more narrative focused uh games but the adventure on game jams are kind of more focused on anachronistic kind of um uh games that you might have encountered in the late 70s and early 80s so the adventure on game jams kind of um keeping that that side of things up i think
0: well let's talk about adventure on then i mean for people that might not be familiar with it give us kind of the the background on it where the idea came from and why it was needed and, and what it does
3: well, it was it was never really intended to be a text adventure system. It originally, it was going to be a gamebook engine, and it was a technology demo. Um, I'm, I'm a software developer, and I was developing some language based technology, and I needed a demo that was uh, business agnostic. So I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if I if I made a gamebook engine? And it kind of morphed into uh, Adventure On, which then became a parser engine, and now Adventure On is actually going back to being a hybrid and gamebook engine as well so it, it really just came from i need a technical demo but then once i had it it was so fun to iterate over that and i could see the benefits for education so i really leaned into the uh, education side of um it's a really interesting way to learn to code
2: well part of that learning to code is uh, having examples and excalibur is actually built into the game so you bought the rights. so why was that game so important to have there as a built-in kind of tutorial
3: I, I think it was just important to have a game that was simple for beginners to play so excalibur was a game that i bought from my local pet shop uh, in thornaby <laughs> I, I guess it would have been about 87 or 88 and it had these rich rich uh, vibrant graphics and as you do things inside the game the graphics change so you had this interactivity and i just really enjoyed the experience as, as a child so i thought well if if that was my experience as a child, then why don't I just, you know, bet on that horse? Because I already know that that's that's pretty good for children. So um, yeah, I I contacted Alternative, purchased the rights and worked that into the Adventure on Tutorial.
0: And I think, you know, the idea of having a text adventure creation system on modern systems is, is, is an amazing thing to have. How do people go about making a game and adventure on then and what can it run on?
3: So it's, it's very easy if you have a desktop based browser because it actually requires a keyboard to do the coding. Um, I could have built mobile menus, but it's it's a lot more work. As long as you have a desktop browser, you just go straight to the, the website and essentially you have a, you have a canvas and you press control and space, which is autocomplete. And it will just essentially um, give you a tutorial on the left-hand side. You follow the steps. And at the end of the tutorial, you've built a genuine 1980s text adventure game, Excalibur. There are shorter tutorials as well. But um, essentially, you have three panels, uh, tutor- tutorial panel on the left, uh, coding panel in the middle, and play your game on the right. And that's how it works.
0: And is it a custom language then that it that it's working in, or?
3: Yes, it's uh, it's working in this uh, custom object notation language, which was something I developed prior to uh, Adventure On, which I just thought would work for this particular uh, problem.
0: And I imagine it makes making your own adventure game a lot easier than trying to do it in Basic or something back in the day.
3: Yeah, um, I, I think you can do you, you can go very far, very fast with Adventure On. You probably hit your head on the ceiling if you're really trying to do something extraordinarily complex um and adventure will get more powerful but it's at least as powerful as the quill and probably uh, a lot more powerful in many ways
2: well we've seen lots of titles coming out and uh, one of them was a spooky adventure and you've worked with horsenberger who does some absolutely amazing teletext style art um can you tell us more about this and do you think we'd see any like teletext crossovers in the future
3: uh, I, yeah i love teletext graphics uh, so uh, in the wintertime, I loved those advent calendars that you used to get on I don't know Channel 4 and you press reveal. I yeah. absolutely love those style of graphics. So I was following Horsenberger for a while, and I wanted to make a text adventure with some interactive graphics, and I just thought Teletext um, and the old uh, kind of BBC style font. So yeah, I contacted Steve. Uh, he put together some graphics. And I, I essentially just thought of spooky scenes that I wanted to have in a game. And then once I had the graphics, I thought, okay, now I have to make a game around the graphics. So that's how the adventure, the adventure really just started with the graphics. And then I just thought, well, okay, make a game.
0: And it's that kind of BBC Micro Mode 7, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. The Teletext mode.
3: Yeah, it, it, looks, it looks gorgeous, actually. I mean, I was quite surprised how good it looks, but I think that's, that's really down to Steve and it's really down to the author of the font. Uh, Andrew Bullhack, I think he made the mode, mode 7 font. Brilliant.
2: Well, have you seen any other titles coming out on Adventure Tron and have you been impressed by them?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of uh, a lot of amazing games coming out. Um, it depends what type of game you like. There are some very nice treasure hunt games. There's uh, Treasures of Hollow Hill by John Blythe. Um, the recent competition was won by uh, D. Cook and it's a game called One More Thing. Um, yeah, there there are roughly about 72 80 adventure games now written in Adventure On, and i uh, just trying to think what, what my favorite is. I, I couldn't pick a favorite because <laughs> I, run, <laughs> I run these jams and certainly couldn't pick a favorite.
0: Are there any that we should look out for and uh, any that you'd recommend people try first?
3: If you just want to understand, um, want to have a fun experience, then I would try one of the TALP adventures first, which is uh, Excalibur. It has a built-in tutorial. So, if you're introducing text adventure games to children, for example, use one of the TALP games, Text Adventure Literacy Project, and uh, that will talk you through all the basics of how to play a game, how to go north, how to go south, how to look in your pockets, get things, solve puzzles. So, I think that those games are more enjoyable for children. Uh, for adults, uh, maybe The Beast is a is a good game, and that that's a part of a game from 1988 by uh, Linda Doty.
0: So you mentioned the Text Adventure Literacy Project, which I know you're behind. Can you tell us a bit more about that then? What is it and where did the idea come from?
3: Well, the idea just came from I wanted to make an easy way for people to search for adventures that were suitable for children. Uh, given that modern audiences don't know how to play text adventure games, it, it's nearly impossible to find a text adventure game that is assumes zero knowledge. So just basically adding T-A-L-P in the description of your text adventure game would make it easy to find those games. And to be one of those games... Um, you have to have an adventure that essentially teaches you the basic fundamentals how to go north south pick up um it has to have graphics um it has to be something that would be engaging uh, for a first-time player of text adventure games that has no prior knowledge
2: do you find that people's attention spanners kind of change because i remember when i was a kid i i would sit there typing in open space door You know, I'd go through every single command. And Do people give up easier (laughs) these days? Probably.
3: uh, I think that's probably true. So there is more onus on designing these games uh, in a better way. So part of that is making sure that you have uh, a good pool of beta testers and just seeing what silly things they type and making sure that you have a response for everything people type. Some people might not type anything silly. They might type in something very quite clever, a different way to solve a puzzle. So Adventure On actually has a, a transcript feature where you can provide your game to a tester and you can basically look at the log uh, with their permission, of course. They have to email you the log, so it's their active choice to send you that. But providing they do, you can study that and you can improve your adventure game. And I think if you don't do that, if you just assume the player is going to type this and type this and type this, they're not going to type exactly what you want them to type. So if the game doesn't respond to what the player is typing, it tends to be a boring
0: game. And I think, you know, I remember really frustrating experiences playing text adventure games as a kid. And you'd, you'd be like, you know, go west. And you can't do that, but if you put walk west, it would. You know, having to write the exact syntax and the exact wording that the programmer had in mind was incredibly frustrating on in some of those early games. Yeah,
3: I think that's down to the down to the primitive passes of the past. Adventure Run doesn't really have that problem, and I think most modern engines don't have that problem anymore. But there are other things like... Um, Maybe the game is expecting four words, and uh, you type in two words, and it doesn't—it imp- doesn't imply the additional two words. So there are lots of there are lots of ways in which the parser will trip up the player, and as the designer, you have to anticipate that and make sure make sure that the player has a good time.
0: So, I mean, kind of talking of design, are there any kind of tips that you give people for, my, you know, they might have an idea in okay. their mind for making an adventure game an adventure on? Any tips that you give them on things to look out for in the design stages? Yeah,
3: I've actually written a blog post called uh, Text Adventure Game Design in 2020, which is on Medium. Uh, so you can check that out. But to summarise, there are, you shouldn't have a barren game, like a, a game that's too large, that's very empty, frustrates the player. Uh, if you have too many things in the world that do nothing... I mean, it, it's great to have things inside your world, but if if every time you interact with them, it says you can't do that, uh, that's a bad experience for the player. Uh, to expect that the player can mind read like a weird solution to to a puzzle, that's bad design. So that there are all these kind of points uh, that you should consider if you're writing a modern text adventure game. It's very easy to write a bad text adventure game, but um, you. With a little bit of work, it's not too hard to write a good adventure game.
0: I think as well, you know, kind of thinking how the player's going to experience the game is probably an important point. I mean, we've talked to people before who've worked for big software companies on games, but they they kind of get their head that into the game. They're playing it every single day they assume that the player is going to have the same knowledge of the game that they do. But obviously, when someone with new eyes is coming to it, it's like a completely different experience. Yeah, I think
3: any noun in your game, you have to think about every verb that, that refers to that. So first, firstly is think about your nouns and think about your verbs and then go to the beta testers and confirm that your assumptions are correct because um, it's good to mind-read the player. But in truth, you, you can't mind-read everybody. Uh, different people are going to have different experiences. But if in general the game responds in a good way to most things that you type most people are forgiving
2: well let's talk a little bit about dad if i've said that correctly Um, Dad, uh, dad (laughs) okay it's another text adventure creator but this has interesting roots it was it was found in an attic right um yeah that's that's correct
3: um i'm not 100 familiar with the story of how it was found but it was I believe there were a number of discs that were discovered and then Spanish users had them for a little while and they were making text adventures in Spanish language. Then a gentleman named uh, Stefan Vogt went straight to Tim and uh, got access to the English version of the interpreter. So now there are Spanish versions of the interpreter and English versions of the interpreter.
2: And that's kind of had a recent revival as well. And there's a few people making titles for that adventure writer. Yeah, that's
3: correct. So... DARD actually operates on uh, text files, so you, you can compile the DARD text adventure game from the command line. And the great thing about DARD is that it, it targets a lot of retro systems. So if you have a DARD text adventure, you can target uh, Amiga, Commodore 64, Spectrum, um, Amstrad. So it's a really, really nice cross-platform text adventure authoring system,
2: and it's very, very small. I think the, the executable is like 11 or 12K. So you can write it and then basically output it to all of these cross-compile. Yeah, it's an, it's machines.
3: not straight through for every platform. You have to account for how much text can fit on different platforms' screens. So it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky in some ways, but it's not too tricky. And actually, AdventureOn uh, can output uh, certain types of text adventure if you if you operate in eight-bit compatibility mode, which is what I call it. But technically, it can work on Amiga as well. Um, if you operate in that mode. You can export some adventure on text adventures to Dard, so you can you can play your adventure on text adventures on uh, on Spectrum and even the new Spectrum Next.
0: Uh, that's supported. Oh, I've just backed the Spectrum Next. I know exactly what I'm going to do with the wires now. <laughs> yeah. Play <laughs> one of my own my dirty question. text adventures. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Ravi's Houses of Parliament text adventure. <laughs> we to get that on there. Well, actually, you know, the Spectrum Next is a very interesting platform. It's so obviously been like a modern retro platform. I mean, what's kind of the adventure game scene like at the moment on retro systems and these kind of new ones that are coming I out?
3: Think the, I think it's really kind of kicking off. Um, retro text adventures are really taking off at the moment because... Uh, you have systems like DARD. There's another system called uh, OSMU on Commodore 64, which is a Z machine interpreter, and Z machine is the virtual machine that was used by Infocom. And there is a system called Puni Inform, which will allow you to write games that target uh, anything with an Infocom interpreter. So it's really, really, uh, this, the community is building at the moment, and there are lots of games on the horizon.
0: Well, Chris, it's been amazing to uh, get your memories of text adventure games. And uh, also, if people want to get started with Adventure On, I'll put a link in our show notes and obviously to that Medium blog that you mentioned as well. I mean, what's kind of your your plans for Adventure On? Where, where do you want to take it in the future? Well, I'm
3: looking at improving it and uh, adding better game book spot, auto maps, um, better visual development tools, uh, more accessible. And um, hopefully it's going to take off in education.
0: Yeah, I think you know, if there's anything guaranteed to get kids' minds fired up I think even today, you know, you talk about all the distractions kids have got And having the internet and games consoles and everything I think, you know, actually making a game yourself And putting your own story onto a screen That you can get other people to play There is still something magical about that experience Yeah, you, I
3: think
0: so Excellent, well, keep Text Adventures alive, Chris It's nice to talk to you
3: Alright, thank you very much